Welcome, everybody. It's a rainy day here in Collegedale, Tennessee. I'm happy for the rain because we've been without for so long, and this is one of those real soakers. I uh, would like to ask us to bow our heads in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Today is the 10th lesson of the study guide, fourth quarter on Ezra and Nehemiah, entitled, Worshiping the Lord. I am going to ask a question because I'm a spelling buff. Don't look at anything. Don't look at your book. Don't look. (laughs) How do you spell worshiping? How do you spell worshiping? Two P's or one P? I go for two P's. Anybody else? One P? Yeah. Well, the lesson study guide said two. Of course, I can't let that give that a rest. So while we're waiting, I thought I would ask Siri. Hey, Siri, how do you spell worshiping? Worshiping. W-O-R-S-H-I-P-I-N-G. So I said, I don't believe you, Siri. So... I said to, hey Google, how do you spell worshiping? Worshiping is spelled W-O-R-S-H-I-P-P-I-N. Thank you very much, Google. Me and Google, we're in it together here. So that being said, um, this kind of reminds me of back when I was attending Dr. Maxwell's, Dr. Graham Maxwell's classes out at Loma Linda. I had the opportunity, to, uh, the privilege to spend 10 years in a Sabbath school class, uh, starting back in 81 when I, was st- when I started medical school, and then through residency and beyond, uh, he would spend, I hope you remember, many times he'd spend five minutes on the sketch on the top of the Sabbath school quarterly, like there, there's always a sketch, and I'd, I'd be there, you know, with my notes ready to, hungry, hungry for food and meat from pearls from my teacher, and he'd spend five minutes on that sketch. He'd say, like, I wonder what he was depicting, why did he choose this, and it was interesting, but anyway, that being said, so you guys remember that? What other things, I'm just going to take a minute to say, what other things do you remember about Dr. Maxwell? If he was a part of your evolution of thought spiritually as he was for mine, do you have anything you might want to share? No, Helga? Pam? Just now, I've been introduced to him. Oh, in his classes. Okay, but the record. If you're, do you have the? Oh, yeah, you have the recordings of it. So, anyway, for what that is, um, I say this in contrast to Tim, who in those same five minutes can cover the plan of salvation in its entirety without taking a breath. <laughs> so I've had both sides: the storyteller and the fire hydrant, (laughs) the wide open fire hydrant. We are so blessed to have Dr. Jennings' energies and abilities as a resource, sometimes, as I mentioned, an open fire hydrant of his material, which I believe is inspired by the Holy Spirit. If we have time, I'd like to share with you and to hear from you how we're utilizing the resources from Come and Reason. Sabbath School Notes in particular, Lori last week I know mentioned the website, how the website has been updated. Um, we have all the archived material, Donna and James, who normally sit right here. In honor of them, I will give a nod to James and his contribution to the archives of all of the previous Sabbath School notes. We have the Stuff You Can Print, which I love the way that's named on the website, Stuff You Can Print. Please take advantage of all this brain power from Tim and Dean and James available 
at all times, 24-7. So let's get started. Hi, people. Glad to see it filling up. Sabbath's lesson, paragraph three, says, This week we will look at how they worship the Lord during this time and see things that we, who worship the same Lord, can apply to ourselves. This is the perennial problem we have, don't we, when we study historical material from the Bible. The historical material can be descriptive in that that it describes what actually happened centuries, millennia ago, what Nehemiah and Ezra actually did. But as inspired scripture, we ascribe some prescriptive value to it or aspects to it. But the challenge is, which is which? Which is descriptive and which is prescriptive? Which ones do we apply to our lives? Just like, just because something happened then doesn't mean that it's something you're supposed to replicate in your life. So this sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've heard this from this podium before where, um, and I like to go back to those archive notes and from this quarter, lessons six and eight, I have some quotes. Remember the Bible records real people who did real things and is historically accurate. Yet those real lives not only record their history, but our object lessons to a larger reality. Another one says, we believe the Bible records real people who did real things, in other words, real historical events, but we also believe that Israel was not only real people doing real things, but what is recorded in Scripture serves as lessons for us, teaching us a larger reality. Overviewing where we've come thus far in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, starting at 605 BC, I thought about how to map this out. I'm going to go from left to right for you guys, but because it's BC stuff, it's backwards. The numbers are backwards. So trust me, I did the math. I think this is correct. Starting at 605 BC, anybody know what happened then? 605 BC is when Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar took the Israelites into captivity. Correct. Perfect. And how long were they supposed to be in captivity for? Uh, 70 years, yes, that was the prophecy. Then, So that brings us down, so 605 to 535 BC, when the first group of Israelites, listen to that rain, I'm having to talk louder to get over the rain. The first group leaves Babylon for Jerusalem under Zerubbabel. Then, 20 years after that, at 515 BC, the sanctuary is rebuilt. Did they start services? No. They rebuilt the sanctuary in 515. But my understanding is, is that it wasn't secure. There were enemies about. They couldn't, they couldn't ever really reestablish life like they knew it before or that they wanted because they didn't have the wall. They were defending from enemy tribes surrounding their city. So now another 70 years after that. So 70 years after this temple, the sanctuary was rebuilt. So during those 70 years, the second group comes under Ezra, and then in that same 70-year bracket, 13 years after Ezra comes Nehemiah, with the second, and those are now the second and third groups coming from Babylon. So in 445, so now we're talking another 70 years from when they first left at 535, the wall is rebuilt. Interestingly, the details included in scripture, it was rebuilt in 52 days. After all that time, it took, granted, the understanding is too that everybody got involved in the building of the wall, and the wall was nine feet wide. I didn't ever find how long it was, but nine feet wide. So it was a substantial wall. What was that? That's a big wall. Um, But they built that whole thing in 52 days. 
And only then did the worship services begin. That's kind of a relative uh, width, though, because many walls were much larger than that back in those days. And the tribes around them, I think it's in Scripture, were ridiculing the Israelites about how weak their walls was. They said, like, a goat could run up against it and knock it down. They didn't, the tribes didn't think they were very well protected. I don't know that. In fact, they were, obviously, because God helped them. They had a, a few other things up their sleeve. Yeah, so good. Okay, so the, this overview shows that for more than 150 years of no services, no formal worship, no corporate praising of God, why not? What kept them from worshiping during all that time before the wall was built? Anybody have any suggestions? Because what was there in the temple and not... Exactly. So the presence of God was only present in the temple, in the holy and most holy... I guess in the most holy place. And without that, God isn't here. There's nothing to celebrate. There's no worship. It's not worship. Um, Psalms 137, 1 through 4 describes the sentiment of the Babylonian captives. This is now going back when they were still in, in captivity. This sounds familiar. If we have any choir people here, I, or I should say campfire, that's a campfire song, the rounds that start, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion meaning Jerusalem. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sounds like they're ridiculing them. But they responded, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How do we sing when we're in Babylon? Here they are. They're slaves of foreigners. They're in a foreign land. In their terminology or in their economy, that meant the other gods were stronger than their God. I mean, that's what it was telegraphing to the enemy, that the other gods were stronger. But Jeremiah, the prophet who stayed behind, sends a letter to those in Babylon, those in captivity. I can imagine them maybe gathering in the town square, reading the letter from the scroll, maybe, of Jeremiah. We find it in Jeremiah 29.4. This is what the Lord, all-powerful, the God of Israel, he... He's saying this is the all-powerful God. He has not lost his power. He is not a weaker God to encourage them. This is what the Lord all-powerful, the God of Israel, says to those people. I sent away, okay, said, said to those people, I sent away from Jerusalem as captives to Babylon. Why are they in Babylon? We think, or one might say, because Nebuchadnezzar came and took them captive. But Jeremiah says, no, the God of the covenant has sent you there. Why? Why did, why does it, why did Jeremiah let them know that, or remind them that they're not there because of Nebuchadnezzar, but because of the God of the covenant had sent them there? Anybody have any ideas? Because they knew that God was still with them, even though they were captives. God was still with them, and yet, what was the consequence? What was it? Why, what were the circumstances that led God to lead them to Babylon? They didn't keep the covenant. Uh, God kept sending them a succession of prophets that they kept rejecting, and and I think uh, Judah only had one, what they call good king, maybe two. And the other successions did not, you know, 
keep the covenant with God. Right. So Deuteronomy 28 describes the blessings and the curses. If you do not obey, you go into captivity. You lose the promised land. God had redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. So to set them up as an alternative community, but they forgot. They turned religion into an exclusive club, forgetting what it's all about. They oppressed the widows, the orphans. They forgot God. They were not faithful to the covenant. Jeremiah's letter goes on to say, build houses, settle in the land, plant gardens. This is Babylon now. Build houses, settle in the land, plant gardens, eat the food they grow, get married, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, let your daughters be married so they also may have sons and daughters, have many children in Babylon, don't become fewer in number. Also, do good things for the city where I have sent you as captives. Pray to the Lord for the city where you are living, because if good things happen in the city, good things will happen to you also. So, once again, why are they in Babylon? Verse 11, I can keep reading on. Uh, Let's see. Uh, This is what the Lord says. Babylon will become powerful for 70 years. After that time, I will come to you, and I will keep my promise to bring you back to Jerusalem. Verse 11 says, I say this because I know what I'm planning for you, says the Lord. I have good plans for you, not plans to hurt you. I will give you a hope and a good future. So again, why are they in Babylon? Because God has a plan. Not evil, but to give a future and a hope. And I would say because the Babylonians were to be included in God's kingdom. Because God could say, they're my people too as well. They just don't know it yet. I thought that was interesting because we've learned so much how Babylon, how there were Babylonian people who came back with the Jews, with Israelites when they came back. And so they were effecting change in their community while they were there. God is trying to broaden their horizons. God is not local, only residing in Jerusalem or in the temple. God is the God of the Babylonians as much as the Israelites. He's not restricted to one locale. And to get an even bigger view, ultimately, Christ says in Matthew 12, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am in their midst. The most holy place is now everywhere community gets together around Jesus and follow in Jesus' footsteps. And that is uh, elucidated as being things like feeding those who are hungry, giving drink, visiting those in shackles, in ministry of helping people wherever they are. My friend and I had a discussion recently and we were talking about things like duty or dedication to study the Bible and whatnot. Um, But these acts of service are every bit, if not more effective in furthering the cause in following Jesus' steps to care for those around us. Sunday's lesson is called Singing the Songs of the Lord. Describes that the singers and musicians in the Israelite troop were a special class of Levites. They were professionals paid for their services. That's interesting because I don't know how many I was hoping I might see Linda and Ken Ojala. They're very dedicated singers. They sing in so many different chorales and choirs. And I pretty much could put money on the fact that they don't get paid for that. Anybody else around here? Is anybody else in here singers? Do they sing in choirs? Contribute through music, musicians, orchestras, that sort of thing. And the last half paragraph, I'm sorry, the last half of the last paragraph on Sunday's lesson says, 
What was the purpose of such a professional organization? Professional meaning that they were paid. It answers that question by saying it served to develop talent and the vision of excellence in worship. Excellence must also always be a goal in worship. Praises must come from the heart and be expressed in the best way so that people will be spiritually uplifted. One can assume that those musicians and singers who served in the temple were carefully selected to lead the worship services. This reminded me of, oh, yes, sir. Uh, I read uh, a quote in Ellen Why She said, if you don't sing songs, it's not worship. So we need to have songs in that life because when I was little, we sing songs first and then we had to worship. That makes you. Yeah, yeah. This reminded me of my experience uh, back when I first moved to Chattanooga. I joined and actually was a charter member of Hamilton Community Church. I don't know how many of you have actually gone. With your, with your husband. That's right. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That's part of the memory, too. I was a charter member of this newfangled concept church that was targeting seekers, and I will put in quotation marks, burnt-out Adventists who were still in the community. It wasn't about reconverting Methodists or other Christian denominations to Adventism. It was truly seeking um, those that were wayfaring in the community. I was the worship leader for five years, and that involved a lot. Developing themes, creating programming, coordination of the pastor's sermons with drama, music, and scripture, all orchestrated and choreographed. And then, even between services and after the services, reviewing with the team and with the pastor for effectiveness between and after the services to continuously improve the effectiveness of the message. The goal was excellence. And that was stated in our mission statement, to have excellence in uh, in worship. I will sell, tell you, of course, this was unpaid, so it was not professional. But there were times when I, I mean, I knew it added up to about 20 hours a week that I spent on this. But we were a small troop. Does anybody else have experience of, of when they were involved in the selection of music, the challenges created when it comes to um, what do we do when someone's not up to par, either... Um, in their quality of their contribution. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Has anybody served on a, a committee where you had to make those selections? Rachel, you're smiling. It's just really difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult because you have the spirit that you want, but the, the, the initial thing mentioned, um, you can't distract because the worshipers will be distracted if the quality... I've always said that it's, I can only imagine it must be harder to worship for someone who's really good at singing or has an excellent ear or is a concert violinist or something. You can't really listen to Susie Suzuki player up there, you know, sawing away without being probably very distracted. The Old Testament model, though, was people were groomed and paid to become the quality through which others might be blessed. Which one of your favorite songs do you think they were singing in Israel when they were breaking into song and worship? Side by side we stand. <laughs> How great thou art. Amazing grace. I think speaking to your comment, I want to say the longest book of the Bible, or I guess it's arguably the longest book of the Bible. There's some people who disagree. It's filled with hymns. It's filled with words of hymns that at that time was put to music the book of Psalms, 
But the reality is, is that each generation subsequent to the writing of the Psalms is given the challenge of putting these words or words like them to music. Anybody have anything to say about that? You, you remind me when Israelites crossed the Red Sea, I can see they dancing and singing beautiful songs, you know? It was from the heart. I was reading the Bible with one of the students. They see the Bible says, okay, to dance, I can go to nightclub with my boyfriend. No, my dear, this is dancing, the spirit of dancing in the, in the group, and not in nightclub, you know. I tried to teach him that, you know. That was, I can see that was beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Music is 100% culture. It's a challenge because obviously at any given time, the lifespans of people in church represent very young and the very old. So that culture can cause lots of uh, friction, right? When we try and incorporate maybe a, a newer culture into more traditional settings. I'm going to skip to Tuesday's lesson because it goes on about the singing. And I've uh, given some folks some uh, verses from Nehemiah 12, 24 through 43. I promise you I've edited out a lot of the names and the places that are whatever. I kept the sentiment of the text. I think, Michael, you've got the first one. Uh, okay, this is uh, Nehemiah dedicates the city wall. When the city wall of Jerusalem was dedicated, the Levites were brought in from wherever they were living so they could join in celebrating and dedication of the songs of Thanksgiving with the music of cymbals and harps. The Levite families of the singers gathered from the area where they had settled around Jerusalem. The priests and Levites performed ritual purifications for themselves, the people of the gate, and on the city wall. I assembled the leaders of Judah on top of the wall and put them in charge of two large groups to march around the city, giving thanks to God. So this is Nehemiah talking, and so he's talking about developing these two groups. James? Oops, sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Right, this has really special relevance to me. Oh, let's hear. Um, in 1968, I was there at the city wall, shortly after the 67 war. And, this, and, the, and part of the wall is believed to be some of the original wall that was built there before Nebuchadnezzar came. And this wall was part of the wall where the uh, Arabs section was. And so the Jews did not have access to this area. Mm. So after the war, it was, it was, became a city dump. And well, before the war, it was a city dump. And so they had just huge mounds of stuff there. And so after the war, they cleared this out. And it became a real gathering spot for a lot of the Jewish people that were there. So when I went there, I was met by a rabbi, and I went through purification ceremony at the wall, and, um, and it was just a, a real, real exciting place to be, because the Jews at that time, just like Nehemiah's time, now they're coming back to Jerusalem, back to the wall, the original wall, hmm. and they were, it was just amazing the energy that was going on there at the wall. You had a flavor of this celebration. Exactly. It was very similar. It reminded me a lot of this because it was just so much, so much going on there at that time. They were all so excited to be able to 
go to this original wall. And so the, uh, a lot of people were praying at the walls, a lot of the, a lot of the um, rabbis would pray, and a lot of other people, and they would just rock back and forth, and then they would write prayers, and they would stick them in the cracks of the wall. All along the wall, there were these crack prayers that were stuck in there. And also I went up on the wall, and it was probably around nine feet thick, even thin, where I, where I was. And walked along the wall there, just like it, like it says, like you, you brought out earlier. So it was a, it was, it reminded me a lot of, of this experience, that the original. And tomorrow, the next day lesson, we will talk about the purification, so I'm going to tap on that in just a moment. Um, but we're, right now the picture is, Nehemiah is gathering together these groups, and he's going to actually split these groups. James, would you read number two? Or no, sorry. Steve, I think you've got number two. The first group went to the right on top of the wall. The following priests, blowing trumpets, marched next, all of whom carried musical instruments of the kind played by King David, the man of God. Ezra, the scholar, led this group in the procession. At the fountain gate, they went up the steps that led to David's city, past David's palace, and back to the wall at the water gate on the east side of the city. So one group's peeling off this way. James? The other group of those who gave thanks went to the left along the top of the wall, and I followed with half of the people. We ended our march near the gate to the temple. So both the groups were that. So both the groups that were giving thanks to God reached the temple area. In addition to the leaders who were with me, my group included, included the following priests, blowing trumpets, the singers sang at the top of their voices. Sang at the top of their voices. So they start here, they each peel off, they go around, they come back to the center. And David, would you read that last? That day many sacrifices were offered, and the people were full of joy because God had made them very happy. The women and the children joined in the celebration, and the noise that they all made could be heard for miles. That's really something. This people that have been so plagued that they can't worship, that's bottled up, it's been inside of them for so long, and now it's peals of singing and joy, I would imagine. Anybody have an idea of what we might learn from this historic account? Remember, the temple is now rebuilt. Worship, worship has restarted. Sacrifices, prayer, singing, it's begun again. Joy abounds. But most importantly, remember that it is through these same gates that the Messiah is to come. One day, the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the glory of Solomon's temper, temple. And the people caught that vision. I mean, they, I mean, the leaders had to communicate that, but I mean, I would think that part of their joy reflected uh, not just the history of where they, what it took to get them here, but I believe that the vision of the leaders was enough to teach them that this was, the Messiah was yet to come. Monday's lesson is on purification. Michael, I, um, Nehemiah 12, 20, I'll go ahead and read that for you. The, it's within that section that you read. The priests and the Levites performed ritual purification for themselves the people, the gates, and the city wall. T purifying themselves and people, but how do you purify a wall? They use that word purify. We might 
use a different word now, but it does talk about cleanse. It, it, I mean, I look up the meaning of the word. Um, but then one would say, why would you feel a need to purify walls and gates above and beyond purifying the people and themselves? No, like dedication. dedication is the word I would probably use today. After 150, 60 years, people had to relearn the laws, the history. They had realized how far they had gone astray. Babylon, the Babylonian excursion was a result of their forefathers straying from truth. They do not want to repeat history, causing God to have to exile them. So they consecrate everything to God, demonstrating to me, it seems, that they were serious. What purification rites do we have now? Oh, Michael, would you tell us more about, because I read a bunch on the purification services, and uh, I don't know that it's all that relevant, but I do want to hear, did you do things like, the stuff I read, some of it was like the water in half of an eggshell was the amount of water that they used to purify themselves. Well, I didn't have the water experience, but what they would do, um, they, they were wrapping... Uh, like leather straps around my arms hmm. and around my body. And, uh, Is that the one like they wrap the straps around your head do that. and on the I've hand? Seen that there too. They would put, it, it's like they would put a strap around their head and they would put uh, part of the Torah and that would be symbolic of, of, of bringing... The word in their mind? mind, yes. And then in their hand, the word in the, their actions? Yeah, so... I, you know, that was a long time ago, but that's how I remember the they, um, prayer. And then we would, he would, he'd wrap these straps around my arms, my body. And so I'm, I'm not... So it was very ritual. It wasn't an actual physical or functional cleansing, right? It was symbolic. It was a rite. I'm not sure what it was. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't quite catch that, hmm. what it was. But he, the, the, the Levite or the priest there thought I was Jewish. So he put you and in, he included you in everything. Exactly. But you were a, a Gentile. Correct. <laughs> my one exposure in a synagogue was I went with my mom. I was 14 years old and we went with a friend. And as we were walking in the front door, and this is, so this is a long time ago. I don't know what it's like now, but we, they introduced us. These are my friends, the Gentiles. <laughs> and we hadn't really thought of ourselves as Gentiles before, but we were the Gentiles. That was a long-lost Jewish son from the U.S. He thought there was got to be Jewish blood in him. So he worked on, I guess. And you didn't correct him? I didn't correct him. I thought it would be very interesting to, to go through it. So. so the purification rites are numerous. I mean, uh, uh, again, secondary to what we're talking about today. But what purification rites do we have now, nowadays? Foot washing, any others? Of course, Hindus and Muslims have purification rites as well. Probably all relating back to the same time, since this was their history. Yeah. So we watched the Iranian women, because I was in the women's area, and they put their hands and then they let the water run down their elbows. Like a surgeon. It's very, it's a kind of elaborate. Huh. The water wasn't particularly clean. <laughs> Don't necessarily want, want to eat. Water. After that, foot washing, cer certainly baptism. Wouldn't that be a ritual purification service that we have now? The wine in the communion service, you know, contrasting the sacrifice of killing a lamb 
versus crushing a grape and making wine or foot washing in the New Testament? Why do we need purification or dedication rites? Why do we need them? Why are they not just symbolic, but certainly not necessarily functional? But what, what is it about them that helps us? Some people might say to commemorate a new chapter. Certainly, this was a new chapter in the, in the life of the Israelites. I tried to say, well, let's think. Oh, James. Will fasting be a part of purification? I would sure think so. Well, now I'm thinking of colonics, stuff like that. People do like enemas, and that's a purging or a cleansing of sorts. But fasting, what's your scene through? Clarifying and clearing and uh, uh, through a dedication. No, I think that would, takes a lot of dedication to fast. I thought about thinking, oh, yes. Uh, it's interesting because uh, as a naturopath, I always teaching how to detox. And uh, I was reading... Uh, few years ago, and I would never thought about how the Lord allowed the Israelites to eat the, the bitter herbs, remember? Mm-hmm. Before they leave the... Oh, I bet that had some colonic effect. <laughs> you know, uh, from this side and from the other side. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. And actually, talking about colonics, that's the way, faster way to, to destroy cancer and, and heal the people. That's what we use in our lifestyle center in Peru. Mm. Colonic is the, the best one. See, my father used to do because he was a, a, a naturopath too. Mm. Colonic is, and I had a special preparation, not just water, lemon, and other things, and it really flushed you out, even kills the parasites, and uh, even the tape roll, tape one. Mm. It's powerful. Mm. That's good. In uh, honor of our class, I ask us to think about design law. What is it about... Uh, uh, the second law of thermodynamics that we know about. Uh, that, I mean, that's certainly science. That's certainly part of God's design of this planet. But that is that entropy, which is the force that goes towards chaos, the forces of chaos are unidirectional. All things tend towards disorder unless you impose some energy, in this case God's energy, into, the, to, into that entity. It's not going to survive because it will devolve into disarray, disorder. God needs to be in the center, constantly pumping the energy into the system in order to defeat entropy. How do you have a sense of dedication which outwardly expresses an an inner reality? I might just get us started since you might not have thought about this, but I would say things like an attitude of gratitude, mindfulness, intentionally being aware Given a different perspective, for example, what might be a negative experience might actually not be bad at all because it's brought a new season of growth, of maturity. Anybody have any suggestions or any ideas as what, what, um, uh, what sort of dedication service or whatever might express an inner reality of yours, an inner commitment? God is not the primary consumer of our worship. He does not need He does not need us to tell Him how wonderful He is. You know, we hear about that when we studied Revelation. You think about throngs and throngs of angels singing, Holy, 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 Lord God. And we think, boy, that would get really mundane. But the reality is, is this is emanating from the inside. It's emanating from the inside out. It's not that God is saying, this is what you need to do. 
So the Bible is a powerful cleanser of negative emotions. And I think when we have those, the Bible says, where to shall a young man cleanse his way? My, my elderly aunt, who was a bottle worker, she would sit in her chair and read the Bible and say, well, I don't really remember what I read anymore. My mind is not very good. But it goes in and it keeps my mind clean. Mm. <laughs> and, and there's something about that cleansing of the word that change, and also reading Ellen White, that changes our emotional, our inside emotional climate to something more beautiful. And we'll go on about that. And thankful. Absolutely. All those things build up with reading of scripture. Yes. In the beginning of this uh, study of this colony, I was thought about, this is not about building a, a, a temple, you know, a building. It's talking about something, a body. And a few weeks later, I was in, uh, preaching one of the Spanish churches, and I, I, they said, you can direct her as our school. Yes, I was so happy. I said, what kind of temple God want us to reveal? Like the temple they built in Jerusalem or what? And they were quiet. So, what temple? And then we realize it's the temple, a body. And now you're talking about cleansing. Praise the Lord. I was, I was thinking that's going to be ended in the message there. So, Rachel, I think what you're talking about is the design law, the law of worship, where we are changed neurobiologically and, ca- see if I can get this the right word right, Character- <clears throat> characterologically, to become like that which we worship, admire, spend time watching, and assimilating. Let's just let that bubble down. I know we've heard it a lot, but that's what the worship is about. It's not for God's sake, it's for our sake. It changes who we are. So certainly, even if we don't, we're not passing a quiz, we're not going to be able to necessarily, it might not be our gift to be the teacher, but it changes who we are, and it certainly reflects God more more fully and more accurately. I would say this is opposed to a, maybe a more legalist or a more uh, imposed law perspective would be we're changed by maybe trying harder or, on the other hand, by define fiat, by decree. And I have, um, if anybody has the remedy handy, Second uh, Corinthians 3.18 And this is again from the remedy, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we whose minds are not veiled by confusion and who reveal the truth about the Lord's glorious character are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord and is applied in us by the Spirit. One way of describing worship is to say that it's an orientation or a reorientation Because so many things in life demand our attention, many of which can be quite trivial. If there's nothing to reorient us, we may waste a lot of energy and enthusiasm on them, though their significance and impact on our lives and the community is minimal. When I read this, this is from the Sabbath School Quarterly, but it reminds me of what we're learning about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day, keeping yourself holy. Another way... Remember the Sabbath day in order to stay holy. The remembering changes us. The Sabbath changes us. Bottom of Monday's lesson, it has a quote. 
what greater, this is transitioning us maybe from the Sabbath school lesson into something I wanted to do is to spend more time talking with us how we're using maybe some of the resources and some of the things that we're learning in this class. So again, to quote, what greater revelation of God's character can we have than seeing Jesus on the cross bearing the punishment for our sins so we don't have to bear that punishment ourselves? Ilga, I won't call on you. I will just simply reflect <laughs> that I saw in your eyes cringe. the cringe. And I, I, I called it a bristle. I, does anybody else bristle? That word punishment. Yes. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, what kind of internal? I mean, is it like destroying our organs or what's the internal punishment for sin? Sin destroys us in our minds. And our bodies. And our bodies. Certainly, yes. It's, it's entropy. <laughs> only, only accelerated. Except, yeah, it's right. Unbridled. <laughs> so I would start by saying, you know, I try to look at the best possible way of reading this by saying, yes, of course I agree that the cross is the greatest revelation of God's character. But honestly, when I read this, it's almost a visceral feeling, speaking of colons and whatnot. It's a visceral feeling. I feel myself starting to get stuck. I feel this sludgy, oh no, is this, how do I, how do I redeem this to be consistent with what I've, I'm learning and what I believe is true about, in this case, the punishment for sin? How does someone bear a punishment for someone else? How would heavenly society work if its inhabitants simply had had someone else, even Christ, simply bear the punishment for their sins. This is when I feel mired. I mean, this kind of this sludgy feeling that I'm getting in this, I'm looking at this legal penal view, but can you help me make sense of this? Rachel had a start by saying, this is not a um, external imposed. This is an internal punishment. Anybody else? For starters, I'm going to say this is why I'm going to Texas. I hope everybody's coming to Texas. <laughs> Hopefully, and what I'm looking forward to a time when I can go through this process on the fly. You know, where I can I can plug that in and go, do, 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 do. Okay, don't go down that way because it is truly a visceral. My shoulders slump. I like, I get sad. I get sad inside because I think it's got to, there's got to be a better way of, of reading this. So what I did... In my trusty, uh, I happen to use an, a, a, an app called OneNote. And what I've done over the years, and apparently this one was dating back to 2016, when I come across the material, either the Sabbath School Notes or in this case it was from the website, it was an early document that the ministry had put out kind of answering questions as to the major theological doctrines in one paragraph. Again, leave it to Tim to put it into one paragraph. And I had cut and pasted that and put it in under, of all things, punishment for sin. So I looked up my handy dandy uh, device and I found punishment for sin. Punishment is the natural consequence that unremedied sin brings upon the sinner in this life and in the final judgment, where each person suffers in the end according to his deeds. Christ, in our place, experienced this mental agony, paren, punishment for sin, during the fractured unity with his father, again, quote, why have you forsaken me? Prior to his actual death, 
when he, quote, became sin who knew no sin. Natural consequence, unremedied sin. So when we say punishment for sin, that kind of puts it in the bucket because we're all sinners. That must be all of us, right? But this is talking about unremedied sin. Um, Or maybe what I have to say is when I interpret that quote from the quarterly as, okay, I'll go there with you if you're talking unremedied sin and it's a mental agony, which ultimately will have physical uh, sequelae on the body. And I might go on to say Christ experienced and correct me, please. I think this is all about us giving feedback as to what, how we're interpreting things and whether we're going off on some rabbit hole or not. So I do want to hear feedback if you're concerned about where I'm headed. Christ experienced separation from the Father as one, as one with unremedied sin or selfishness. Not because the law demanded, but because it showed that even facing certain extinction, Christ did not use his power to save himself. He demonstrated perfect love emanating from his character, which was developed in his humanity. You okay with that? Okay, we won't tell me how long that took me to write that down. <laughs> we won't share that part. I also thought about more the mental agony, guilt, and shame. I have another entry under guilt and shame. It said, what does it mean that he bore the guilt and shame? Christ bore our guilt and shame, i.e., he was not guilty and he was not ashamed. He was bearing our guilt and shame. It quotes Hebrews 12, 2, saying, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ scorned or despised the shame of the cross because he knew who he was and that this shame of experience was actually upon those who rejected and crucified him, not on him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They think they're shaming me, but it's actually shame on them. Christ, when he was lifted up, drew all unto himself. Thus, he knew his act was an act of supreme glory and not an act of shame. So I'm sharing this because if people aren't doing this, if you're doing something else that allows you to maybe have more accessibility for when we are confronted with something that kind of threatens to take us down, like even if it's just temporary, um, I would encourage you to maybe do something like that where you're excerpting and organizing in such a way that it's accessible to you when you need it. Thursday's lesson is on the priests and the Levites as part of the worship. First paragraph says, quote, the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above, the sanctuary above, is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. By his death, he began that work which, after his resurrection, he ascended to complete in heaven. We must, by faith, enter within the veil whither the forerunner is for us entered. That's a quote from Hebrews 6.20, and she's quote, Ellen White is quoting in Great Controversy, page 489, uh, Hebrews 6.20. So, did you catch that first line? The intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. As someone... Yes, Epi. I read that too, and I decided in my mind that what it means is his death provided the remedy 
But as long as he's interceding for us in our behalf, in our hearts, interceding, he is continuously applying that remedy. That's why without that continuous remedy that he applies, we, it's not sufficient just to provide a remedy, but he has to continue to apply it to our hearts. And that's why maybe what it means is that his service in heaven is just as important because he is continually interceding for us in our behalf mm-hmm. or in our hearts. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? It's very nice. Um, as someone who has been asking this question or the question, why did Jesus have to die? All about the cross, trying to understand since I was eight years old, this is a big statement. If Christ's intercession in the heavenly sanctuary is as essential as a cross, I ought to get brushed up on what's going on up there. I just want to say once again, the resources that we have, I took an opportunity with this kind of stimulus here to read the uh, web version, the new or the one that's now downloadable from the web, uh, the heavenly sanctuary document, where it is made so real, so tangible, how, how, I mean, in words that we can understand, you know, uploading hardware, software, the cloud, which of, who of us could share a story from this week where I just about bricked my phone and I, uh, uh, <laughs> I thought I had updated, I thought I had uh, backed up everything to the cloud. And what I've learned is that you don't really back up a mirror image of, of your phone. You're just backing up files. But you got to put all the, all the apps and all the whatever back in there so that stuff can filter back in. But we have a mirror image. We have the essence of who we are backed up to the cloud. Um, and I just reviewed that document. Again, I would encourage you to take advantage of that. In summary, I've got a few, a bit of a reading here. So just tell me, this is going to be kind of a summary of today's lesson. The specifications for worship in the whole Old Testament are quite unlike the way we worship today. This shows that the specifics are not the most important aspect, but rather it is the intentions and the desire to praise God that should be uppermost when we worship. Many arguments have centered on music, form of service, the right posture for prayer, etc. But looking at what happened in the Old Testament, such as here in Ezra and Nehemiah, this should help us not to be dogmatic, dogmatic about worship style. As God repeatedly makes clear, he is looking for the attitude of mind and sincerity for conviction and dedication, far more than the details. That said, there were rituals to be observed that God himself had instituted as teaching mechanisms for a, very, a people very different to us in their background and experience. In fact, God went into great detail as to what needed to be done so that worshipers could learn lessons. Tragically, it all degenerated into formalism and hypocrisy, much to God's grief and to that of the later prophets. So what do we learn about how to worship today? Much of the answers will relate to our picture of God and what we think he wants from us. All too often, worship is really seen in a similar way as those pagan rituals that sought to appease their deity to make sure he or she was not offended in any way and that the requirements of the divine human contract had been properly observed. 
So when you look at such practices, it's all about serving a capricious, often malevolent God who takes delight in causing suffering. We We need to take any trace of these ideas out of our worship. We do indeed come to church to worship, but going through the service without thought is not worship. Additionally, worship is not just a church service. We can worship in our homes, when we, read, when we talk, read the Bible and sing, when we're doing the wash, if we make up our minds that we're tuned towards God. Yes, even this Sabbath school discussion we're having right now can be identified as worship as our minds engage with God as we think of spiritual things and how we relate to our loving Lord. Most of our whole lives can be worship can be worship as we put God first and foremost in our daily experience, thinking of all he does and the kind of being he is. By looking at Jesus, we see the truth of God and the way he wins us back to love and trust, to be healed from the damage sin has caused. This, too, is worship because we are recognizing the value of God, the worth-ship, which is the basis of the word worship. And Yes? Sometimes we, we are, I mean, we concentrate too much on the Sabbath day, but the Lord wants to draw the law in our heart, not just in one day. When I realized that 20 years ago, I said, I was just a Christian of the Sabbath. And when I talked to people, I said, is there any way we can live without a sin? People say, no, it's impossible. Yes, it's impossible to us, but unless we become an Adventist of the seven days, that can be changed our lives. And also threw away the idols. We have too many idols. I have too many idols. And 20 years ago, I became a Christian. I used to be just Sabbath keeper, you know. Bless, the Lord bless me. And this morning, I, I want to introduce my sister came from Peru. First time in America, her son. Welcome. My brother, he grew up with me. He's a little boy in the jungle. We are jungle boys. I'm a jungle boy. Jungle boys. Yeah. And uh, that's a beautiful time. They don't know too much English, but I can... Thank you for coming. Thank you. Let's pray for Maximo, Carlitos, and Julia. Julia, beautiful. Thank you. Yes, thank you. So maybe we need to call ourselves, instead of Seventh-day Adventists, Seven-day Adventists. You heard it first here. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I, I heard somebody say, if you say, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, I, I, I heard somebody say, Satan laughed. He said, let them be Seventh-day Adventists. The six days is ours. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. Yeah. Let's bow our head for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the rain, for Sabbath, for time to remember, time to commune with you, with each other, certainly with your word. We pray for your blessing on us the rest of today and going throughout the week so that we can become seven-day Adventists. In your holy name, amen.